Hey everybody, this is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. And the show topic today is called A Real Cancer and Nutrition Conversation. So what do I mean by a real cancer and nutrition conversation as opposed to maybe a non-real or an unreal or a false conversation about cancer and nutrition? Yeah, I want to have a straightforward conversation about does nutrition help people with cancer? Can nutrition, when applied properly and in the form of either diet, uh, juicing, and nutritional supplements, whether they make a difference in the growth of cancer, the aggressiveness of cancer spread or metastasis? Can nutrition make a difference in the side effects uh, in terms of reducing side effects in those patients who receive chemotherapy and radiation and Along those lines, should a person with cancer use nutrients like antioxidants when oncologists say that certain types of chemotherapy work by oxidative means? So if that's true, should we be using antioxidants at all? Wouldn't that interfere with chemotherapy? Well, these are very good questions, if I do say so myself, but I didn't make them up. You all gave me these questions. You've been emailing me these questions and this topic for a while, and I've done shows on cancer before, but this one will contain a whole other level of detail. So before I start, just a quick disclaimer that all the information that I'm going to be speaking about today is meant for your educational purposes only. It's not meant to replace sound medical and nutrition advice. It can't be. I don't know you. And everything that I do say here, for some of you out there that uh, are dealing with uh, with cancer, you don't and shouldn't go ahead and just purchase these different nutritional products and get on them. There are certain nutrients that have positive effects on various types of cancer. There are hundreds and hundreds of different types of cancer. And there's other factors in your health history and in your genetics and perhaps the medication you're taking and, and other uh, aspects of your lifestyle, such as your sleep quality uh, and, of course, your diet that are impacted by and can impact how your body uses nutritional supplementation. So for those of you joining us for the very first time, welcome. My name is Dr. Michael Wall. This is Ask the Blood Detective. We're having a real conversation about cancer and nutrition if you want to reach me with show ideas or comments, please call me at 914-552-1442. You can email me at info at blooddetective.com. And please do check out my website because I've got tons of videos and radio shows on the video section and in the blog section. And that would be at intmedny.com. I, N as in Nancy, T as in Tom, M-E-D, like medical, N-Y like New York, dot com. So first of all, let's just go over a couple of basic concepts that are very important, such as how, why, why are there doctors out there that are opposed to nutrition and natural approaches to cancer specifically? Well, I don't know. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, they're ignorant. Um, they're clearly not aware of what their own scientific uh, literature says regarding the relative safety of nutrition and the synergism, which is the positive interaction among not only different nutrients for cancer, but various medications and cancer. Now, I'm not 
claiming that nutrition in the form of supplementation, uh, even diet, that uh, they're completely safe. Uh, they're not. Uh, someone can overdose on any number of nutrients or take nutrients that may interfere with their medications or other nutrients which could create side effects. But the safety profile for nutrients is in a whole other stratosphere compared to medications and certainly compared to chemotherapy and that sort of things in the sense that nutrition is hundreds of times safer. And that's actually been calculated. So why are some doctors opposed to natural approaches? They don't know anything about them. So ignorance is bliss. They don't like it. Secondly, and this is just the truth. I think we all know this. Many doctors have egos that are uh, that outweigh the the need for them to really uh, subjectively, or I should say, objectively, look at the evidence. So, when ego gets in the way, and doc, and you tell a doctor, doc, you know, I've been taking these supplements, right? Well, as a patient said to me yesterday, you know, I told my oncologist that I was seeing you, and he's like, why are you going to him, and why are you doing that? The doctor did not say, oh, okay, um, I need to know exactly what you're doing there. And then they should look at what they're doing, have a discussion, and say something like, well, uh, this seems reasonable, and I don't think that interferes with what we're doing. This I'm not so sure of. I really don't know. It's probably best if I have a conversation with Dr. Wald. That would be the kind of comment that shows that the doctor is more concerned about the cancer patient's care than his or her own ego. That's just the bottom line. I can go on all day about other reasons why they may not uh, show a a positive attitude towards uh, your use of nutritional supplementation, but um, we'll have to save that for another show. Okay, the other question, should should you take antioxidants? We're going to answer that uh, if you're receiving chemotherapy, let's say, or if you have cancer in general. And do CT scans increase your risk of getting cancer? Do mammograms increase your risk of getting cancer? Well, the answer is yes. Um, one has to always weigh the, the risks of doing a procedure like a CT scan or a PET scan against the potential benefit. That's called the risk-benefit ratio. So a doctor is going to say, and probably correctly so, that they need to do these imaging tests uh, at times so that they can monitor the, the status of, of the cancer, uh, any spread, for example. And that is true. But we can also mitigate the radiation effects upon your body by taking the right doses of antioxidants. And I did a show called Radiation All Around Us, which you'll find up on my blog at intmedny.com. And it is one hour of scientific evidence on the practical use of nutrition to offset the the added cancer risk that we get from radiation exposure in medicine, which accounts for about 6 to 8% of uh, cancers in the United States. We're going to talk about the role of vitamin C in cancer and and all kinds of great stuff. So let's get down to it. Well, let me read you something here from that appeared in the um, Alternative uh, Therapy Health Medicine magazine entitled Antioxidants and Other Nutrients Do Not Interfere with Chemotherapy or Radiation and Can Increase Kill and Increase Survival. I know that was a sentence, but that is actually the title of the article. And what this article concluded based on surveys was that since the 1970s, and I'm quoting, 280 peer-reviewed in vitro and in vivo studies, including 50 human studies involving 8,521 patients, 
5,081 of whom were given nutrients have consistently shown that non-prescription antioxidants and other nutrients do not interfere with therapeutic modalities for cancer. It doesn't happen. But what about my question earlier that if certain chemotherapy acts as an oxidant, why would we want to take antioxidants? I've said this before in other shows, and I've said it during my professional seminar series, and it is a, it's, it's one of those concepts and, and responses that you've just got to hear it because you hardly ever do, and it's correct, and here it is. The term antioxidants, as I've said before, is a misnomer. Vitamin C, antioxidant, vitamin E, antioxidant, things like that. They're not antioxidants always. They may actually act as oxidants. Yeah, so a so-called antioxidant can act as an oxidant. Now, this is not a holistic idea. This is a matter of science and physiology. Any textbooks, uh, any textbook of uh, biochemistry and nutritional biochemistry will, they state this and show the chemistry in the book and how the reactions occur on a chemical level with vitamin C and vitamin E, for example, converting to their oxidant forms and back again to their antioxidant forms. So depending on the combinations of nutrition you give a person, and very importantly, depending on the body within which you deposit so-called antioxidants, these antioxidants may act as oxidants. Now, you must understand that oxidants are not always a bad thing. And you may have thought that, at least unconsciously, because you know about antioxidants, they get all the press. So we know we're taught that they're good, antioxidants good, oxidants bad. But the body uses oxidation to break down dead and dying cells, including cancer cells. If there's no breakdown, there's no buildup. So this is, again, a a fundamental aspect of chemistry. It is a confusing concept I I could imagine for many of you out there, but don't feel so badly because it's a a very difficult concept for many of uh, the health professionals to whom I lecture to during official uh, like scientific symposia all over the country to get as well. It's very important that any nutritionist that you see or any any doctor for uh, cancer care must know his or her chemistry. Then they need to know your chemistry because remember what I mentioned? That the effects of these so-called antioxidants are relative to the body that you put it in. So if I give you the so-called antioxidant vitamin C, but you have a blood pH that is too low, you're likely to use that vitamin C as an antioxidant, believe it or not, as an antioxidant, not all the time, but sometimes. And you might say, not all the time, but sometimes. So how do I know if so-called antioxidants are acting in sort of a balanced way where I need a certain amount of oxidation and I need a certain amount of antioxidation? See, the, a healthy body knows that. It's when the body's unhealthy that it, 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 that's a sign that it can no longer balance out its needs. It doesn't balance out the antioxidant effects that you might call those the building up and repairing effects with the oxidant or the breakdown effects. And if the breakdown effects exceed the build up effects, then you've got dysfunction in the body. We'll talk about this a little bit more. But the other thing about antioxidants is this from the same study. Furthermore, they say, Antioxidants, quote, end quote, enhance the killing of therapeutic modalities of cancer, like chemo, decrease their side effects, 
And guess what? They protect normal tissue. In 15 human studies, 3,738 patients took non-prescription antioxidants, quote, end quote, and other nutrients actually had increased survival. What am I saying? Well, for the oncologists out there who are listening, number one, please contact me. Let's do a show together. Okay, let's clear up a lot of stuff. But you know, and I'm talking to the antioxidant, uh, I'm talking to the oncologists out there, that you're telling your patients no nutrients, nothing at all, they don't work, and you know you're telling them that for one of two reasons. Maybe you have no clue about their science, and that's not a particularly irresponsible thing for you to do by telling your patients, I don't know how they work. But don't tell them they don't work. That's just a lie. The only way you can know that is if you actually did research. So they do work. And secondly is you're unaware because you're not understanding that antioxidants and oxidation are misnomers, and you're just making a conclusion that antioxidants, quote unquote, will adversely affect the chemo you're giving patients. And this study of over 3,000 individuals, 15 human studies, 3,738 people say that you are wrong. So why won't you open your mind and give your patients every fighting chance? Because they need it. They need it. Let me tell you something else uh, regarding an article in a journal called Medical Hypothesis. They said that now, and remember, whenever I say an antioxidant, you have to put quotations around it. I'm not going to keep saying that because it probably sounds stupid over the radio. <laughs> Supplemental antioxidants impede tumor dissemination. That means reduction of the spread of tumor cells. And that's an effect that is complemented, co- I should say, by the antioxidant's ability to stimulate the immune system. Antioxidants can do that in certain people. So antioxidants can stimulate the immune system in certain people with cancer. And antioxidants may act as oxidants or antioxidants may act as antioxidants in certain people. How do you know? Well, I do tests to find out. I can do a test in the urine of oxidation potential. And if I want a lot of oxidants in the blood, uh, eventually they'll grow, grow, grow until there's so much, the, the antioxidants, I'm sorry, the oxidants in the blood will spill out in the urine and I can check it. And if it's not at the level I want, we can change our plan. I can check someone's blood pH quite easily. We're not ever using, ever using urine or saliva pH to figure out any nutrition in in anyone other than someone who has a, a urinary tract infection. It has to be based on blood pH. If that's confusing to you, or if you want to know what there is to know about blood pH, please listen to my show called PH Lies. It is the only show I have ever heard that tells the truth about pH. And I explain it so you can get all the chemistry behind it. So you can think, hey, I don't have to take Dr. Michael Wald's word on this. I I understand that. Okay? So... One can say the following. I want to be fair here. Maybe there are studies, there are studies that are negative studies. They do not show a positive benefit of antioxidants and other nutrients in in cancer patients. That's not a shock to anyone, at least not anyone in the medical profession or scientific profession, because we know 
that studies do not always agree. Studies are done differently. They may be done on animals. They may be done on an uh, insufficient amount of, of subjects. They may be performed improperly. Uh, they may be, have been designed improperly. Many studies are obviously biased, and, and we know this. Um, there's lots of reasons why we'll have negative studies. Oh, I, should, I left another important reason out. You can have a negative study, a study that does not agree that nutrition in general is good for cancer care, and it can be perfectly well-designed. But we want to look at what's called the preponderance of evidence. The preponderance of evidence means, do most studies say use it in this case? In the, in the case of most nutritional supplements that I've ever looked at personally as a blood detective, the answer is overwhelmingly yes that these nutrients should definitely be used. Now, when I deal with an individual patient, I may come across a situation where it's clear that this person should not have N-acetylcysteine. They should not have glutathione given the chemo they're receiving, you see, or the medications or their general health makeup. There are reasons. That's why we always have to go back to the individual. But what is so odd about Going back to the individual, it sounds like a very reasonable thing to do when we're trying to figure out if something works for an individual. Scientific studies, by definition, folks, you know what they are? They are not about individuals. They are designed in the opposite direction, right? Studies such as, okay, a double-blind, placebo-controlled study of, let's say, 100 women. They split the 100 women, 50 over here on the left, 50 over there on the right. The 50 on the, on the left get the, the placebo, which is the sugar pill, and the, the placebo, I'm sorry, and the control group on the right, they get the real therapy. And then some conclusion happens, and they're counted up, and then we get some statistics about what the average woman, how the average woman responded. Now, I can tell you, I've been on this planet for 53 years. I have never met the average woman. <laughs> and I'm joking here because this could easily have been a study of men and I don't know and have never met the average man. So just from a, some, from a semantics and a, and a common sense perspective, if we want to know what the individual needs, we don't look at averages. At least we don't look at averages only because averages are not about the individual. So what do you do with this information? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I take this information of all of these studies and averages and then I say, okay, does this apply to this person sitting before me? And then I do testing, blood detective testing, to see if this information that I've learned from hundreds of different studies over 30 years actually makes a difference for this person. And how do I know if it makes a difference? Their cancer markers reduce. Their tumor size reduces. Their side effects are fewer or non-existent. They are getting better, okay? All right. I hope that makes sense. That was, a, that was a lot. And the fact is, too, and this was stated in the Journal of the American College of Nutrition. So that journal said the majority of cancer patients combine some form of complementary and alternative medicine with their conventional therapies. And you know what else, folks? Most of those people, they don't tell their oncologists because their oncologists' egos slam these patients. And it is very disturbing. And not fair. It's just not fair. Let's get practical. Let's talk about vitamin C for a second, which is ascorbic acid, okay? In order to get killing effects of cancer cells with vitamin C, 
the concentrations in the blood may need to be as high as 250 micromolar concentration. Now, all you need to know about this 250 micromolar concentration is that it is an amount of vitamin C that one could never achieve by taking it by mouth. So sometimes a person would need to have intravenous vitamin C to get the levels high. And then in my experience, having worked in several offices where we provided hundreds of IVs of vitamin C a week, that oral buffered powdered vitamin C, like my detox eliminate highly buffered form, that's the blood detective brand, detox vitamin C, it was able to maintain the high levels originally obtained through the use of intravenous nutrition. Now, for those of you who are thinking about intravenous vitamin C or want to get it or what have you, you need to remember something. It's only one thing. You cannot just use one thing in cancer care. That's just, it doesn't make sense. We have too many other things that work well and even work far better than the potential vitamin C. But vitamin C may have a place and it often does. But here's what I want to tell you. I have yet, except the offices that I worked with and supervised, seen an office that provided intravenous vitamin C do it correctly. And I'll tell you how you can know. Don't take my word for it. Why would, why would you take the word of the blood detector, right? <laughs> this is what you do. Before you get your vitamin C, that practitioner, that doctor, must measure your vitamin C levels in your plasma for a baseline. Don't worry if they're not deficient because the amount of vitamin C for cancer care is far beyond even sufficiency. You need a lot more than normal, okay? But you want to get a baseline because you need to see the concentration of vitamin C exactly and directly after you receive the intravenous vitamin C. If the amount of vitamin C they gave you is insufficient, you will not reach the 250 micromolar concentration. And that's what you need. So I rarely see the pre before the blood, before the IV vitamin C and the post IV vitamin C measurement of vitamin C in the blood. And there's one more very, very important thing. No one should ever receive intravenous vitamin C until they have a specific blood test known as glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, G6PD blood test. The G6PD blood test needs to be normal. If it is low and you receive intravenous vitamin C, you could die from it because the G6PD being low is commonly, not always, but commonly a genetic sign of deficiency in that enzyme which protects your red blood cells from hemolysis or destruction. And if you have vitamin C in an environment with a G6PD deficient red blood cell, you could have a hemolytic crisis and you can die from it. I have seen patients that have said, yeah, Dr. Wald, every time I get my vitamin C, afterwards I feel really sick, I have to lay down, or I'm just nauseous or what have you. And my doctor says it's detox. And I said, with all due respect, your doctor is an imbecile. Um, did he or she do your G6PD? The answer is no. I said, we need to do it. And it was low. And that has happened many, many, many times. So very important. You don't just get nutrition. And also you need to realize too, a lot of people I see want intravenous nutrition. They think that IVs contain like every nutrient that you would ever need. 
No. At the most, you can may, maybe push 20 different nutrients in an IV, but with that number of nutrients, the rate of adverse interactions of the nutrients themselves in the IV bag is very, very high. So certain things need to be given orally in the form of foods and supplements, and then possibly intravenous nutrition in some cases. And there's lots of cancers that there's no study on the use of the IV vitamin C. So there's only specific ones around, I would say around eight or 10 of them, which it seems to me that intravenous vitamin C is something that should be part of the picture but definitely not even close to the whole picture. And we also want to make sure that any nutritional uh, efforts regarding cancer care need to be on a, on a number of different levels. Here's what I mean. First, there is cancer that is known. There may be tumors. So clearly the process has gone on a while. There are certain nutrients that are better for that stage, depending on the type of tumor and the cancer. See, so I can't be very specific with you now about like what supplements, but then there's this tumor. And then there's also other cancer cells forming in the individual. So you need to have nutrition that helps retard the growth of new abnormal cancer cells and those may be very different than the nutrition you would use for the, the person with established tumors. And then you want to always try to prevent metastasis, which is spreading, which is, by the way, the main cause of death in cancer patients is spreading to organs and the organs fail. We get sort of a multi-organ multi failure scenario. We, there's different nutrients needed for the metastatic phase. So if a person has tumors, and then they have some potential for metastasis or obvious metastasis, and they almost certainly have new cells forming all the time, all three levels and, and everything in between, we must, must, must balance the supplementation and the diet correctly. It, let's say, for example, that all three of these different stages, metastasis, tumor, and new cell formation, require vitamin C. But the level of vitamin C that's required for these three stages is very different than if it was only one stage. Or if someone can't tolerate the vitamin C, they may need a smaller amount along with boswellia and perhaps zinc and reduced glutathione and things of that nature, resveratrol, melatonin, a modified citrus pectin to compensate. And we don't want to just have one great nutrient for, let's say, metastasis and one great nutrient for tumors and one great nutrient for initially new cells. We need to have multiple nutrients for the known mechanisms and stages of the cancer because these nutrients, like for example, you might have five different nutrients that work well on preventing metastasis like modified citrus pectin is a very good one. Vitamin C is another good one, but not as good as modified citrus pectin. And then there's Boswellia that can do that and glutamine and, and melatonin, for example. So those five work on reduction of metastatic spread, but they, they do it from slightly different pathways too. So you're getting good coverage. An individual with cancer, according to my calculations, requires a minimum of 36 different nutrients to manage the fundamental ways in which cancer uh, progresses and the processes of cancer in the human body. That's based on a lot of study and it's based on years and years and years of review. About 15 years I've been on this. So most of the time when patients see me and they've done some cancer care, 
sadly, it is inadequate. Um, for a person to to not know some of this information uh, so that they can apply the nutrition properly is to me uh, a tragedy because I make it my business to educate anyone that tr- trusts me with their health. And the interaction of an educated patient with me is always a better scenario. Things just work better. We, we, pick, we make the right choices together. So you want to be proactive. You want to know something about what you're talking about. And if you don't, research it. And then talk to a health professional who may be able to discuss it with you further to see if what your understanding is is correct. You might find pretty quickly that you know more than the healthcare provider. Sadly, that happens. Uh, and it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. If a healthcare provider in nutrition for cancer is doing this, they should know more than just about any one of their patients they would ever see, if not every one. That's just how it should be. Let's talk about the fact that antioxidants, when used with chemo, actually improves the effects of the chemo. I said it before in different ways, but the Journal of the American College of Nutrition had a study that determined this as well. Lots of people stop their cancer care in the form of their chemo because they just cannot tolerate the side effects. So if a person comes to me and they choose standard oncology treatments, radiation, surgery, chemo, then it's my job to allow their bodies to get through it with the least amount of difficulty and side effects possible. And a lot of these side effects, once they show up, they may never go away. I also want to add a statement uh, made, well, that I pulled from the Cancer uh, Treatment Review. That magazine said that, and I'm quoting, this systemic review provides the first evidence that antioxidant supplementation during chemotherapy holds potential for reducing dose-limiting toxicities. A dose-limiting toxicity means that if you give a person chemotherapy and you want them and they choose to receive it and you want it to get its best effect, if you give that person antioxidants, they will be able to withstand the side effects so that they can get the dose of the chemotherapy that they need. Now, some of you are saying, I would never get chemotherapy. Why are we talking about chemotherapy? You never know. But I think you should know some of the options and some of these, these concerns because if you ever end up in this situation where you have a cancer diagnosis, you should take it upon yourself to look at the natural therapies but also deeply look into the recommended chemotherapies or whatever else is recommended to you from your standard oncologist so that you can make not an emotional decision you can make the right decision for you, which is one based on facts and the science and whatever other um, evidence that you need. Okay. And what about this concept of chemotherapy and radiation increasing a risk of future cancers? You know, so imagine the scenario where you have a cancer diagnosis, it's it's you know it's going throughout your body is metastasizing you receive chemotherapy and it goes away but then because of the chemotherapy you develop yet another cancer from the cancer care itself now we all have heard about this and when if you ever should read the inserts 
the descript- descriptions provided in the chemotherapy containers used by the oncologists, it says causes cancer all over the place. Um, toxins in the form of chemotherapy are toxic by definition, and they tend to cause DNA damage. And when you damage the DNA of cells, the genetic material of cells, those cells don't operate normally. So they copy themselves in an abnormal way. And that copies themselves again, they copy themselves again and again and again. And this is the proliferation of cancer cells. Um, and that's the beginning of the end, particularly if it's secondary to chemotherapy that you previously received. So. I bring this up because there's always the risk of that happening. And um, the geniuses behind the whole cancer care industry, they have uh, now made announcements how they're developing chemotherapy that is low dose, as if this is some breakthrough concept, and that is given differently and also protects the healthy cells. So there's all this talk about this happening. Um, we will see. But we already know that nutrition has protective effects before your initial chemotherapy, during chemotherapy, and helps offset the risk of DNA damage, which can produce and often does produce secondary malignancies. So when is the right time to take nutrition and cancer care? What's the answer? All the time but maybe differently, pre, during, post, all that sort of stuff. That's what I help people with. Let's just talk about um, a drug that is very common uh, in breast cancer patients. And you know which one I'm gonna say, right? Tamoxifen. So the thing about tamoxifen is that we know that it can cause endometrial carcinoma. So we've established that, we know that. There's also studies that show that the right amount of vitamin B2, which is called riboflavin, the right amount of niacin, which is B3, and ascorbic acid, vitamin C, against tamoxifen, a mediated endometrial carcinoma has been demonstrated, meaning if a person has the right amounts of, the, of those two B vitamins and vitamin C, and they take tamoxifen, you've reduced the risk of developing endometrial carcinoma from the tamoxifen. One study said, and I'm quoting, our results suggest that riboflavin, that's B2, niacin and ascorbic acid have potential combination therapy against tamoxifen-mediated secondary endometrial carcinoma. And that was a rat study, just so you know. Let me jump to another concept, and this has to do with prostate cancer. Evidence for vitamin D in a large number of cancers is overwhelming. And one conclusion from a study said the following, quote, our data revealed, uh, I'm sorry, our data review of large number of vitamin D targets, which are called target genes, show a preventative effect of vitamin D against prostate cancer. That was a confusing line, <laughs> I'm gonna say it again. Basically, vitamin D helps gene expression work better. It regulates gene expression in, in, pro, in prostate cancer prevention. So those that are susceptible to prostate cancer, which is every man, more or less, more if you have a family history of 
prostate cancer, or if you're a man and you have someone in the family with breast cancer, you're also at risk for prostate cancer because breast and prostate cancer are essentially the same cancers, but in men and women. And it's also true of women that if you have breast cancer or if there's someone in your family history with breast cancer or prostate cancer, your risk of breast cancer is higher. But vitamin D lowers the risk of both prostate cancer and breast cancer. And we've talked during prior shows that the correct amount of vitamin D is the amount that you can take that is the highest normal that you can achieve on a blood test. So the blood test range is 10 to uh, 100. I'm sorry, not to, well, some labs do have 10, but it's mostly 30 to 100. And most doctors are okay with 50 based on no, no science. The science, the meta-analysis, which is the best science on vitamin D says, the magic number for most people is 70. The higher normal your vitamin D, the lower your overall morbidity and mortality from anything. Morbidity has to do with the quality of life being increased with vitamin D. And mortality obviously means, would you have vitamin D at target levels? About a 70 that your risk of dying prematurely from a preventable or delayable disease is much, much greater. So vitamin D, by the way, works in multiple ways in the body through several orchestrated ways that can affect the proliferation of the epithelial cells that make the prostate and they slow cancer formation and help prevent it. Same thing, by the way, with a Mediterranean-style diet. You should just be aware of that. Um, you're thinking, what's the best diet? What's the best diet? Paleo diet? Is it, is it Mediterranean diet? Is it a vegan diet? There is no perfect diet. How can there be? There are too many different people. No, no two of us are the same. You're not even the same today as you'll be in a month. Um, but even if there was something magical about the, let's say, the paleo diet, uh, which there's not other than eating, you know, clean, uh, you know, foods, which we all know what those are. Um, the paleo diet is, is based on just junk science. Uh, our, our ancestors, the early hominids, they ate all kinds of different diets uh, on different areas of the planet. And then they interbred and all kinds of things were happening. So there's no, there's no paleo diet. It's not like there was just one campground where all of our paleo ancestors, you know, had a party. It just didn't work that way. So um, not to say there's not good aspects of it. Of course there is. So when I try to figure out the best cancer diet or anti-cancer diet for a patient, this is where things get very complicated because most people and healthcare providers get this wrong. And I'll tell you why, and then you'll understand it. First, I might start with a baseline that I happen to like a clean vegan diet. But if I put a cancer patient on a vegan diet, they're probably going to starve. They're going to waste away. It's going to, it's going to promote what's called sarcopenia, which is muscle wasting. You do not want a cancer person wasting. So we need to give them a certain amount of protein. We can make that protein plant protein, but we'll almost always need to supplement that plant protein based diet with, um, nutritional supplements of proteins so that I can provide the amount of protein that this individual with their unique cancer situation needs per kilogram of their body weight. And if I want them to gain lean mass, then the protein I give them has to be different. If they're staying the same, that is probably not a good idea, although it's not as bad as losing lean mass. 
So there was the protein component. But during cancer, there's a hypermetabolic state. So a person must have um, medium-chain triglycerides to help offset the wasting. Because when the wasting happens, the immune system is gone, and then, it, then it's all over. So you can give them coconut oil, which contains about 25% medium-chain triglycerides, or you can give them liquid medium-chain triglycerides, which is 100%. So that's what you put on top of that diet. And yes, you can encourage them to eat coconuts. That, that will make some difference. And then there is uh, omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids, for just about every cancer that I've ever researched, uh, has a positive effect, meaning it reduces inflammation in, in the cancer situation, which perpetuates uh, cancer cells growing, 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 and spreading. It reduces vascular and lymphatic leaking. When little holes are in the, the vascular tissue and lymphatic tissue, cancer cells leak out. So we need the, the omega-3s for that. We can't have anyone be eating, let's say, omega-3s more than twice a week. Otherwise, you get mercury toxicity. So how about none of it? And we give them supplements of EPA, DHA, or some people, they may need just a lot of DHA, which is the fish oil component. So I'm trying to give you an idea of how there is no anti-cancer diet. Well, you can Google anti-cancer diets and you can find all kinds of, of diets that, have, that everyone claims the same thing. Everyone claims that everyone's surviving and doing well. Well, look, I've looked into many of these diets. I've called up the inventors of them. I've traveled out of the country to them. They can't show me the, sh the charts. Uh, you know, they're, they're not introducing me to long-term survivors. So my point is that Whenever you hear that there is one way of doing things, I would suggest you run the other way and don't stop because um, it's just um, ridiculous. So am I telling you one thing? Just the opposite. I'm saying we need to figure out what you need. Whether you have cancer, uh, arthritis, autoimmune disease, whatever it is, we need to find out what your needs are. I will look at the studies, but then I have to, to see, based on clues in your genetics, clues in your lifestyle, clues in your health history, your health goals, and other factors, how to put it together in a way that you can do. So you're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. My name is Dr. Michael Wald. I practice in Westchester, New York, about an hour north of New York City. If you want to work with me, you can call me at 914-552-552. 1442. That's 914 552 1442. Please post your questions either on my Facebook page or on my blog page. You can get to the Facebook page uh, right through my website at intmedny.com. And please do send me those emails with questions and concerns. Info at blooddetective.com. Let's, let's talk a little bit about nutritional synergism, okay? So you've heard, because we've talked about it, that vitamin C is important as an anti-cancer compound, and that's true most of the time. But did you know that the combination of vitamin C and vitamin K3 exhibited much stronger anti-cancer effects than either one alone? It's true. That's called a super additive effect when one plus one equals five, okay? And since we are approaching better weather, Let's talk about how you can protect your skin a bit from uh, can skin cancer. So you've heard of melanoma, right? And we know that 
melanoma is highly uh, metastatic in its potential, and it's very resistant to therapies. But there was a study where they looked at the spreading time of malignant melanoma, and what they discovered was that melatonin had a particularly strong effect on inducing what's called cellular differentiation. Cancer involves cellular de-differentiation, where cells just get all screwed up and they don't know who they are anymore. De-differentiated. Melatonin differentiates the cells, like most of the anti-cancer nutrients do. And it modified also melatonin estrogen-dependent pathways, which also reduce future risk of estrogen-dependent cancer cells. So melatonin is, is a, an amazing nutrient. We mostly talk about it, right, when we're dealing with sleep issues. But um, melatonin is an extremely powerful antioxidant, far more powerful than vitamin C and E. It is fat-soluble. It gets in the nervous system. It's get, it gets into fatty components of the body, which is very important for anti-cancer effects. The dose for a cancer patient, of course, can range, but would be anywhere from about 6 milligrams to about 12 milligrams, depending on the cancer and the situation. Let's talk for a second about uh, cisplatin. Cisplatin is a well-utilized chemotherapy agent. And they know that it's very toxic. But when they gave patients in one study uh, a nutrient, wait for it, (laughs) okay, it's called NAC, N-acetylcysteine, or NAC. It helped protect against cisplatin um, nephrotoxicity or renal or kidney toxicity, which can put the patient in renal failure, and then they're they're just done. And they gave very low levels, uh, around 1,200 milligrams. That's considered, you know, pretty low for oral administration for an anti-cancer effect. So these are examples of how nutrients can be used to allow a person to be more tolerant to chemotherapy. These are also nutrients that can be used and should be used in most cancers in people who do not choose to have chemotherapy and, and, uh, or radiation. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention during this show some ways in which to prevent cancer, which uh, some, again, you might know, but I want you to understand why you want to uh, avoid these things. So number one is limiting the consumption of red meat to no more than 18 ounces a week because the evidence shows that meat is, um, particularly processed meat is entirely toxic, but this amount of intake is associated with increased risk of all cause morbidity and mortality, not just cancer. But the most amazing statement I can give you, uh, which is again from detailed research says that there is the data show Any level of intake of meat can uh, be shown to increase your risk. There isn't a safe level. So any amount increases cancer risk. It's incredible. The other thing is that the evidence on diets high in processed meat are even more troubling. So according to different reports, they're talking about for every 3.5 or so ounces, like 100 grams of processed meat per day, increases your risk of colorectal cancer by 42%. Every 3.5 ounces, just 100 grams, 
of meat every day increases your risk of colorectal cancer by 42%. This is very, very strong. We want to have you avoid hot dogs along with sausages, bacon, ham, cold cuts, and other processed meats. If you have any, certainly if you have any inkling that you might have cancer, but for prevention, these are extremely, extremely important. And I know that I'm talking to a very sophisticated audience and, and this is very, uh, you know, basic work for you, but for some of you, it may not be. We also know that grilling animal products, both red and white meat causes potential carcinogens called heterocyclic amines. Those are called HCAs, heterocyclic amines, and polycyclic achromatic hydrocarbons to rise within the food. Very bad stuff. They've been shown in laboratory experiments to trigger cancer. Then, grilling vegetables um, produces no HCAs, which is great, or PAHs. Those are those toxins, and therefore has no potential cancer risks. Diets high in plant foods of all types are associated with reduced risk of several cancers, as you might imagine. And you've got to understand, no single food or food substance can protect you against all cancers. What the research is saying, what I believe in other scientists, is that the right combination of foods in a predominantly plant-based way is how to go. Evidence is just mounting all the time. The minerals, vitamins, the phytochemicals in plants, they interact to provide extra cancer protection. And that is through what we've called earlier synergy. In addition, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, and low-energy-dense, low-calorie foods are probably very protective, not only against cancer, but even weight gain, and therefore diabetes and heart disease. Very important stuff. So eating a predominantly plant-based diet can help prevent weight gain and thus will help protect against cancer because there's an increased risk of cancer in people who are overweight because the fat stores lots of fat-soluble toxins. They're highly, highly carcinogenic. So cancers of the colorectum, the esophagus, the endometrium, the pancreas, the kidneys, breast and post and, and postmenopausal women, all of these are increased with weight gain, which can be offset by eating in these healthy ways that I'm describing. So basically, two-thirds of your entire plate should be filled with vegetables, whole grains, and beans. That is a good recipe for reduction of cancer. And the majority of the laboratory research that I've seen on diet and my 30 years of experience suggests that eating vegetables and fruits, whole grains, beans, they will lower your risk of developing all diseases, practically all diseases. Let's talk about berries for a second. We know that they're a great source of vitamin C and fiber and phytonutrients. Foods high in vitamin C and all of their synergists protect against many cancers, particularly esophagus, while whole foods, whole foods containing fiber probably decrease your risk of developing colorectal cancer. So the, the eating naturally, what different components you'll find in the Mediterranean diet, different components you'll find in the vegan and vegetarian diet, different components you'll find in the paleo diet, you know, eating clean with all, in all of these ways, fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts, seeds, uh, as you can see, it's the common thing uh, for all-cause morbidity and mortality. But you know, berries, particularly strawberries and raspberries, they're high in something called egallic acid. 
And in some studies, this phytochemical has been shown to prevent cancers of the skin, the lungs, the bladder, the esophagus, and the breast, just the berries. And some other research I came across years ago suggested that egalic acid seems to utilize several different cancer-fighting methods all at once. It acts as an antioxidant. It helps the body deactivate specific carcinogens. It helps slow down the reduction of uh, cancer cells. So these are all the mechanisms that underlie cancers. What about strawberries? Well, strawberries also contain a wide range of phytochemicals, the flavonoids, and they work on yet different aspects of the cancer situation. Um, both strawberries and blueberries contain what are known as phenolic compounds called anthocyanocytes, okay? Which many scientists, and I certainly believe, are among the most potent antioxidants yet discovered, and they have other immune modulating properties. Let's talk about cruciferous vegetables. So what are they? Well, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, bok choy, and kale. These are non-starchy vegetables like um, which I just mentioned, that are protective against cancer of the mouth, the pharynx, the larynx, the esophagus, and the stomach. Very important. Cruciferous vegetables, some of you are thinking, should be eliminated from the diet in those with low thyroid. That is possibly true because hypothyroid um, can be made worse in a person who is not on medication if they take the cruciferous vegetables because they contain what are known as goitrogens, which can interfere with thyroid function further. If you're already on medication for thyroid, you can eat all the cruciferous vegetables that you want. Okay? So the research on the cruciferous vegetables highlights several components that have been linked to lower cancer risk. So they've got these um, glucosinolates in them uh, and indole-3-carbinol and isothiocyanates these are extremely potent anti-cancer nutrients. I suppose I should mention for a moment my opinion on soy products for cancer. This is complicated because many studies, many, 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 many hundreds of studies on soy show it's anti-cancer. And just as many studies, it seems, show that it may promote cancer, particularly in people uh, who already have cancer, meaning it can make them worse. I avoid more than the smallest amounts of soy in my recommendations with people. I mean, if they have more than a brick or two of soy per day, that's gonna have an effect. Not a small amount of soy, a few grams of soy in something per day. But once you get over about two grams, you might have effects. Soy can act as a pro-estrogen or it can act as an anti-estrogen depending on the person's body you put it in. And it can change from time to time. Now, that little concept I just introduced you to is a very deep concept, and it basically has to do with soy looking a little like estrogen, triggering an estrogen receptor in a cell like a breast cell, like stimulating it, causing an estrogen effect, or soy could block that receptor from estrogen getting in, having an anti-cancer effect. So it has to do with the situation that you're depositing the soy in. And you should be aware, too, that if your practitioner gives you, let's say, I don't know, B vitamins that came from soy, that doesn't mean there's soy in the B vitamins. They just extracted the B vitamins from soy. So you don't have to freak out over that, okay? <laughs> All right. 
Green tea, very important anti-cancer compound because of the polyphenols and the flavonoids in it. They modulate many different cancers. They also, a green tea also has uh, catechins, which are uh, extremely anti-cancer molecules. And um, the, the amount of supplementation and how much you should give for all these things should be based on your body weight, should be based on your uh, percentage of muscle, water, and fat, and your phase angle. If you don't know what the heck phase angle is, you better learn. Go to my blog at intmedny.com, intmedny.com. Go to the blog page, scroll down, and look for the phase angle show or search for it on any of my pages. I have a search bar, and it will come up. You need to listen to it. I also have a very long write-up on what phase angle is. That angle will tell you if what you're doing, whether it be natural or uh, standard of care and medicine, is actually working for you by measuring the energetics of your cells. Extremely, extremely important. So I guess what I'll also say here that just a few other nutrients that are more or less important for different cancers include activated folic acid, the L5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, particularly in people who have gene problems called MTHFR. The amount of folic acid should be based, listen up, on the size of your red blood cells as viewed under a microscope. And then your vitamin D, that number should be 70. Vitamin C, you should have tons of vitamin C pouring out in your urine. If we want oxidant effects of vitamin C or antioxidant effects of vitamin C, that can be measured in the urine as well. Melatonin, as I said earlier, somewhere between three and 12 milligrams. Flavonoids, antioxidants, the medium chain triglycerides, the modified citrus pectin. Yes, there's a lot of things. The, the best anti-cancer nutrients and diets that a person needs needs to be based on their situation. Then a responsible practitioner will look over the, the considerations of the nutrients and foods and other lifestyle factors to decide what is the best fit for this person right now, which may change in a week or two or a month or a year to keep up with their, their changes. Even my supplementation uh, varies, uh, sometimes even day to day, depending on how hard I work out, if I don't work out hard, how I'm feeling, um, all kinds of considerations. But this is what a trained health professional can help you get straight. It's a lot of confusion in this area, but it can be done right. It must be done right because there's just too much at stake. There is no one anti-cancer product that's going to do it for you. I mentioned during my research, there's a minimum of 36 different nutrients. Sometimes I make a custom supplement for my patients with all of the nutrients they need as a base, a base that never changes. And then there's a few other nutrients on top of that that we, we move around in terms of dose and timing to just make it as perfect as possible. So thank you everyone again for joining me today. You've been listening to Blood Detective and we've been talking about uh, cancer, a, a real cancer nutrition conversation. Wasn't this a real one? I, I think this was an actual real conversation. I feel like I've been talking to you for the last hour and I appreciate it. To get in touch with me, to work with me as a patient, either by distance or in person, you can call me at 914-552-1442 or email me at info at blooddetective.com, or you can go to my website at intmedny.com. Thank you, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.